You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, where we're dedicated to exploring the peripheries of world literature and unearthing neglected texts from outside the mainstream canon. In the house in which they could not afford to live, it was unpleasantly quiet. Marvellously noisy, but the noises let through silence. The noises were jays bustling and screeching in the wood, a hay cutter clattering and sending up waves of scent, substantial as sea waves, filling the long rooms as the tide fills a blowhole, but without roar or release. The third noise was the light wind, rising off the diamond blue sea. The sea lay three parts round the house, invisible because of the wood. The wood rose from its cliff point in a single tree, spread out inland in a fan to enclose the house. Outside the veranda, a small lawn had been hollowed, from which the wood could be seen as it swept up, hurrying with squirrels, into a group of immense ilex, beech and oak. The lawn was stuck with yuccas, and tree futures, dripping season in, season out, with bells the colour of blood. That was the opening paragraph of Armed with Madness by Mary Butts, which was originally published in 1928. The book is Mary Butts's distorted recasting of the Grail legend. In a remote house in the southwest of England, a group of friends while away their summer, Two events occur that disturb this peaceful balance. The arrival of the American visitor, Carsten, who falls instantly in love with Scylla, a beautiful and enchanting girl, and the only woman in the group. And the appearance of the mysterious Jade Cup, which may or may not be the Holy Grail. Butts's novel is formally inventive, at times maddeningly obscure, but always beguilingly beautiful. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this rather underappreciated text. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 8 of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are things, Rob? You alright? Oh yeah, great. Thanks, Sam. Glad to hear it, man. We're talking today about Armed with Madness by Mary Butts, uh, which was published in 1928. How did you feel about reading this one, Rob? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, really, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, in our in our conversations so far, it's it's certainly a difficult one. Although maybe not so difficult to read, I found it was weirdly a bit of a page turner for me. Anyway, there's there's a, a strange rhythm or energy to it that I found. I kind of desperately wanted to know what was going on i mean at a very low level there is a kind of just a mystery or a, or a kind of like a who done it element which really isn't the main point of the book but does kind of keep it going at quite an interesting pace so yeah at, at that level i found it very enjoyable to read and then the, the the language is beautiful and it's so full of symbolism and and things to think about that yeah i enjoyed it immensely i really enjoyed this one too i'd been wanting to read it for quite a while 
and I heard Mary Butts's name coming up over and over again and never really got around to reading it. But um, actually, Rob, Mark Valentine, who wrote the introduction to Flower Phantoms, got in touch with us. And, and this text was one of the books that he recommended that might work for our, for our show, actually. So uh, I guess that's the kind of final prompting to, to actually get sit down and read it. I was I was quite interested to read it particularly because of these sort of mythical underpinnings of the book. There's quite a pedigree of that in in modernist writing, you know, most notably in in Joyce obviously. But this is of a very different character. Like yourself I have to say that it's, it was a real challenge to to read it. It's it's a really worthwhile read I think, but not a comfortable one. And uh even leaving aside its obscurity it has a sort of mood of disquiet, I think, a sense of foreboding throughout, uh, which is quite quite unsettling. I don't know if you felt that way as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, from kind of the very first page, there's dark clouds overhead, and um, things are things are obviously happening. And then, strangely, even even when things have come to a head, and it becomes, and this is perhaps part of the the cleverness of of what happens when what is really occurred is explained and, and illuminated. It doesn't somehow get rid of any of the this kind of anxious tension or uh, psychological ill-ease. Yeah, it's, it, it never really leaves, I don't think. I don't know if you'd agree with this, but um, it felt like even even at the very end, this strange sense of foreboding is still still there, this undercurrent. Yeah, it even, even seems to build in certain ways, even after the kind of rather dramatic event towards the end of the book. No, you're absolutely right. Also, style-wise, this this book is quite tricky to read. I think I likened it to a to a fog or a cloud. There's a sort of nebulous quality to the prose here, and there there aren't very many points of orientation. Even the dialogue doesn't necessarily furnish you with the details you would ordinarily expect to find in a novel. And it seems to rely quite heavily on a on a a sort of uncertainty that lies in the center of it you know obviously the grail cup itself but also some kind of central emptiness that we never quite understand what do you think makes it particularly obscure rob could you point to anything in particular do you think there's a there's some intentional obfuscation or yeah 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 i mean i think i think you've touched on it there already uh, definitely things things in kind of a, a fog half glimpsed I mean the prose is is really quite beautiful and, and description and turn of phrase are, are really incredible but there's a sense of things half described not quite in focus the introduction to, to our copy talks of flashes of beauty and moments of illumination and I sort of imagined this idea of a, of a torchlight or something you know a, or, or perhaps a lighthouse moving through the darkness where you We'll see these glimpses of something, but you never see the whole picture. Mm. And I think, yeah, that's that's certainly very deliberate. And likewise, as you've as you've said, with the dialogue, it seems to exist, especially in the dialogue involving Scylla. It seems to exist almost entirely in non sequiturs. Nothing ever quite makes sense, and it's it seems that the characters are either talking in a way that there's an undercurrent of meaning which we and then Carsten who's the character we kind of follow at the very beginning who's this outsider American can never perhaps be expected to understand or follow completely because the words I think you might have said this actually to me that the the words and the, the structure 
of language all makes sense and it's, it's in perfect English, but there seems to be something else that is hidden or, or buried beneath it that is very difficult to, to access. And maybe this is the entire point that we're really not meant to. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right. For the most part, the it is kind of grammatically comprehensible that there are, I noticed, lots of... Um, you know, I, I made a note here of unfinished sentences, but um, that's not quite right. It's sentences that are clipped off at the start somehow that um, you find full stops between phrases that are inherently linked it throws you off a little bit there's a lot of kind of clipping of the of the language then there's also that quite dense use of allusions to to other texts and quotations um that kind of pepper the text and they you're right they seem to be there almost to confuse Carsten to sort of keep him out of the loop and 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 by t by turn our, ourselves the readers are also kind of kept out of that that loop but yeah for all the obscurity of it it is undeniably beautiful like particularly in the descriptions of the landscape i think but clearly has an affinity with this this part of england the uh, the southwest you know she spent she was born there and spent much of her life there and she seems to have a deep emotional connection not just with the beauty of it but with the the weight of myth and and, and history within that region it's it's kind of utterly gorgeous at times um yeah i think that's kind of what kept me reading when even when i felt a little bit lost in terms of that because i found it interesting that these almost lyrical passages were describes the the landscape and i'd absolutely agree with what you said about her engagement with it but they come frequently in these small doses intertwined with the text and unlike the nan shepherd that we read earlier in this series where the landscape is very much foregrounded and, and extremely present it feels like the landscape is absolutely necessary and, and very beautiful but very much the the backdrop and almost aloof from human affairs at points it's described as as giggling or laughing at the human affairs that are going on yes it's uh, meticulously and very lovingly observed but because it does come across in these glimpses and at points disappears and then reappears it's almost being withheld or withholding itself perhaps i certainly get a sense of it being something else to an insider you know at the start of the book but mentioned that, that some visitors are kind of so overwhelmed by something in the landscape that they can't stay for longer than a few days but also a weird sense of perhaps something to do with ownership that point at the very beginning where where it, they talk about this before Carsten has arrived to to visit the friends in the house um and they're talking about his arrival and and they say that the wood will giggle at him yeah whereas the group that they have a sort of reciprocal relationship with the landscape, don't they? They uh, dance and sing for it. Yeah, absolutely. Although I was interested, I think it might even be Ross that says this. And he says, we don't mind, it's our joke. But that seemed kind of like oddly, perhaps a little bit too far on his part. Because as the, as the story unfolds, you realise that the joke is somewhat on all of them. They don't have this control that they might imagine. And it's perhaps not quite their place in the way that they imagine that they're all subject to this mysterious goings-on that we'll talk about later. That menace, that slight menace, never quite goes away, I think. Mm -hmm. 
So I thought it was worth saying something about Mary Butts's life because it's been noted in lots of different places. I don't know if you read this as well, Rob, that her life almost overshadowed her work or some considered it to have. And obviously this particular podcast, we're trying to approach some of these texts, which unfortunately this particular book is actually quite difficult to get hold of. But as you say, the life is overshadowed and overshadowed the work to such an extent that perhaps some of these works are being lost and, and refound and lost again and, and uh, so on. So it does seem a shame that that's the case. Well, the copy that we're reading is a Penguin Classics edition from not so long yeah. ago. No, really not that long ago. And all of a sudden it's, um, you know, actually quite expensive to pick up a, a second-hand copy of it yeah there don't seem to be too many around and there is an, another edition available but it's another quite expensive hardback edition yeah so there does seem to have been an attempt to rehabilitate her literary reputation but she did have quite a colorful life she's born in dorset in 1890 and she's the great granddaughter of a wealthy fairly wealthy artist's patron sir thomas butts he's a patron of and friend of william blake's and the butts family home housed quite a large number of his works but during mary butts's lifetime her mother sold sold all of them for a relatively small amount of money in in 1906 even though mary had advised her against it and most of those works are now held in the tate gallery and her father had literary interests and was was friends with uh, some of the pre-Raphaelite artists and particularly Dante Gabriel Rossetti. She's then educated in St. Leonard's School in uh, St. Andrews in Scotland. In Natalie Blondell's uh, introduction to Butts' journals, she makes reference to the fact that while Butts didn't receive a classical education as most of the male modernist writers of her period would have, she was nevertheless um, immersed in the classical myths from an early age. Her, Her father read to her when she was very young. She goes on to study at Westfield College in London, which is actually, well, it was later part of the university that I attended, Queen Mary, but she left without completing a degree and goes on to study for a diploma in social work at the LSE. During her 20s, having a somewhat sort of mystical disposition, she becomes involved with Alistair Crowley. Is it Crowley or Crowley, Rob? You know what, I don't actually know. I would have said the same as you, Crowley. Becomes involved with Alistair Crowley and works with him editing volume four of Magic, this uh, long multi-volume text of occult mysticism. And during her time with, with Crowley, she experiments for the first time with drugs. She takes hashish and cocaine and opium and practices yoga and meditation as Crowley required of her. And he seems to have had a sort of, I don't know, harem of of sorts surrounding him and that habit of taking opium stayed with her for, throughout her life this one journal entry from 1927 i thought this was quite amusing rob it says remember this day opium down to seven pipes <laughs> which is <laughs> you know pretty extreme habit by the sounds of it for me and she frequently writes about opium throughout the diaries and yeah in her 20s she also has lots of relationships with with women that's one really notable thing about her work Uh, i really thought so anyway that there's a very frank treatment of bisexuality throughout it's barely commented upon um, but it is evident in in quite a few of the characters i mean to modern reader it seems unremarkable but when you think about when this was written, it's absolutely completely normalised and never, yeah, as you say, never, never commented on it at all. 
I know that she she wrote a novel before her first publication. Her first publication was Ash of, of Rings, but she had a novel before that that no publishers would take because of its um, its frank treatment of sexuality and its anti-establishment a- attitudes. But this one seems to have slipped by the censors, and I wonder why that might be. I think, as you say, it's um, because it isn't commented explicitly. The characters are kind of painted in this slightly half-obscured way. It's never It's never clear how intimate the relationships are whether it's relationships of friendship i mean the only the only one that's made explicit is a heterosexual relationship um, that's true and the rest of it is very much left to the imagination and again as a as a modern reader i think you can you can read it and say very clearly okay this this is going on and it's completely accepted and and there's no judgment going on within the book perhaps to a reader at the time it would have been read as as friendship or something else. Yeah, I think uh, the the fact that it's not made explicit is perhaps why it has, as it, yeah, as you say, it's kind of slipped through the senses. She's also a socialist and pacifist during the war, and she um, she does lots of her social work with conscientious objectors, which I I believe was how she met her first husband, John Rodker who wrote a novel about a conscientious objector and was a conchy, so-called, himself. Um, and he's, he's another relatively unknown modernist writer. I mean, he has some critical attention, but no very little popular success. We've mentioned him before on, on the podcast, actually, Rob. I was quite keen on doing reading a short novella that he wrote, but it's quite appallingly racist, so uh, <laughs> I was a, bit, a, a little bit turned off by it. They marry in... 1918 and um the marriage doesn't last they they separate well it lasts a little a little while but they separate in 1927 but they spend most of the the 20s in paris where butts becomes friends with most of the famous and influential figures of modernism it's pretty much the the all-star cast you know hd and joyce and marianne moore and ford maddox ford ezra pound and her writings are really well regarded in these circles but it it does seem that a few figures who were regarded as, regarded as important at the time have kind of sl- slipped out of the the reading public's imagination somewhat. You know, I'm thinking of someone like Basil Bunting and and Butts herself, whose whose reputations have to be kind of reclaimed later on. And it's it's difficult to say why exactly. You know, it's not that Mary Butts's novels are more more challenging than Ezra Pound's poetry or Joyce's novels, for example. And it's very difficult to say why why that might have happened. Do you have any ideas about it, Rob? I mean, do you think it's difficult to say precisely what, but do you think it is because she's a woman? Because at a certain point, perhaps even today, it just meant it was taken less seriously. You know, I'm not saying this is quite at the same calibre of Joyce, but, you know, there's certainly enough for, for scholarly inquiry and and there's a huge amount in the text but perhaps where where Joyce spawns this entire industry Mary Butts falls out of print entirely and there's not necessarily the same academic background to her learning and then also I suppose maybe this this focus on kind of certain type of spiritualism which at various points becomes unfashionable and fashionable again but yeah I wonder I wonder how much it is literally just that that she's a woman it's possible yeah I mean Juna Barnes went underwent a similar fate her writing had to be sort of reclaimed but then you do have figures like Wolf who thwart that narrative somewhat I read elsewhere that it might just be down to the kind of vicissitudes of of publishing 
I heard one scholar claiming that had her work been published, had a, a collection of short stories been published by Faber and Faber towards the end of her life, she might have been established at that point and regarded as an important writer, but that didn't happen. I would agree with you to some extent as well that it it might be this kind of mystical nature or this mystical subject matter of her writing that fell out of fashion. It certainly seems that there's a kind of a number of factors that can be pinpointed that probably taken collectively are the, are the reason that she has fallen out of favour. The mysticism one is certainly one of them, but I also think it's slightly unfair to lump her in with that because even within the text itself it seems very aware of not, you know, she's, she's not diving headfirst into all of this. It's, it's taken with a pinch of salt and taken with a certain self-awareness and taken for what is useful for her for her writing or taken for what you know fits in with a certain worldview. And there's something, you know, very intellectual and very beautiful about the way that she incorporates this in the text. I think even reading it now, it, it, it doesn't read as something especially dated. There's the edges of, of what she's saying are unclear enough that it's still very fascinating, I think, now. It doesn't read as, as polemic or it doesn't read as spiritual guide or, or something like this. So so I feel it's, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That, that is one of the reasons, but it feels unfair. I mean, you're right about it feeling timeless in a way. It doesn't have many of the hallmarks you sort of associate with modernist writing of this period, you know, maybe particularly that emphasis on the on the city and interiority. You know, we, we have flashes of, of that in, in this book, but it's unlike Joyce or Wolf where you slip into the flowing river of internal monologue and pulled along by the current it's not really like that in in butts at all the text seems to exert a sort of pressure against you as a reader so i found it quite unlike reading lots of modernist texts that i've i've read so so anyway after separating from john rodker she has several stormy relationships with other artists and writers, the, the Scottish writer Cecil Maitland and an American composer Virgil Thompson. She eventually marries the British painter Gabriel Aitken, who identifies as homosexual. She takes his name and they settle in Cornwall, but again the marriage breaks down after a few years in 1934. That period in Cornwall was one of the most productive in her in her literary career. She produces lots of works towards the end of her life and dies in 1937 at the age of 46. Well, yeah, while she's known as a sort of socialite and um, perhaps not taken so seriously because of that, you know, just reading snippets of her journals, I didn't have time to read all of them, but there's a kind of deeply intellectual and scholarly side of her. She's really engaged with the anthropological and folkloric writings that underpin this novel, and writing is clearly her her first love you know the, the sort of playground of Paris seems to take second place for her and she regards herself as a as a serious writer and compares herself to Eliot at times in her journals yeah quite a colorful life but very interesting literary production as well I think I thought it might be worth outlining the setting of Armed with Madness and a few of the characters. The setting of the book is a cottage in a wooded coastal area in the southwest of England and the book opens with three of our main characters, the siblings Felix and Scylla and their friend Ross, sunbathing naked out on the beach and they're enjoying a very 
lazy summer at the cottage. And in the first of their conversations, we, we learn that it's this is the last day's peace, which is a, a reference to the imminent arrival of the American Carsten, wh- whom they met in France and who, who's coming to pay a visit. And it's Carsten who is, for the most part, the, the reader's companion throughout the novel. And we're kind of privy to his private thoughts in a way that we aren't with lots of the other characters. And that, that phrase, the last day's peace, takes on a deeper truth when, on the following day, a strange jade cup is fished out of a well with a spear when Ross goes to visit some other friends that make up the rest of the group. Picus, the beautiful bird-like trickster character who has a sort of also has sort of mythic resonances and Clarence the um, black homosexual veteran of the first world war and with the discovery of that jade cup which may or may not be the holy grail the peace of this country house is, is kind of ruptured and the the mood becomes progressively more uncomfortable and sinister as the book goes on one of the central plot points i suppose is this game played by Picus in which he hides the cup that may be the grail in it it backfires and creates a kind of really sour mood between the characters and we essentially watch the events that follow the the consequences of this this object's presence and they kind of culminate in a an act of violence towards the end of the book to which it seems to be building throughout there is a fairly standard narrative that you can you can follow through the book you know you could you could write the outline very simply and that could be that but obviously it really really isn't there's so much going on there's so much even as you know second reading and and going back and making notes it's very very difficult to work out exactly what's going on and i think this is perhaps but's point it's not that there is some key to all this that can be unlocked but actually there know characters talk at cross purposes and and i think she very sophisticatedly creates a, a, a genuine psychic life for her characters and they don't always know what they're doing and they don't always understand the other yeah i was very conscious of you know in outlining the plot i'm essentially telling you nothing of what it is like to, to read this this text <laughs> So, Rob, you had some thoughts about the period and this this generation. Yeah, completely. So, um, yeah, I guess we can we can start at the beginning as these these friends are kind of lounging about, as you as you said, in this kind of long, lazy summer. And obviously, straight away, very much we're within a group of sort of like well-to-do individuals. They, I mean, the book and the 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 absolute first page says that they're in a house which they could not afford to live, but yet, obviously, throughout throughout the book, they mostly there and then and then travel around and don't seem to have any other source of income so it's this kind of very peculiarly English aristocratic thing where where actually it has very little to do with money having lots of money but but having this this ability to be to be comfortable and to be able to do what you want and not really have to worry about anything which actually kind of reflects Butts's status herself she her father left her an annuity which she lived on throughout throughout her life uh, although she was very free with her money and let it at times sink into various endeavors that her partners engaged in like the setting up of the Ovid Press. She had a similar lifestyle, I think. She was able to live and, and do as she pleased for, for most of her life. Exactly that. Like the, They have this underlying security that kind of allows the, the events of the book to play out. 
the only mention of any other sorts of income is that they rent some other houses on, on this land around the cottage that they live in for the summer to a fisherman who's described as a gentleman and a shepherd who's described as a troglodyte. And it says um, they were equally friends with both and it feels like this is a, a kind of quite apt description of their, of their life that they, I don't know, they seem to exist in these two parallel worlds of, um, or certainly fancy themselves to be living in those worlds that they have a certain relationship with the land and they, they fish and they skin rabbits. And, uh, but certainly their, their life is that of aristocratic leisure. But I really felt, and I don't know if you felt the same, that, that reading this, it's, it's almost impossible to get a sense of that unless you happen to be an aristocrat. Um, but very much the, the only parallel I could think of to this was was of childhood and I think we perhaps both agreed that there's something of a of a coming of age or um I mean there's points of it that that remind me of you know these sort of slightly antiquated childhood adventure stories like the famous five or something exactly exactly yeah yeah yeah. and I think this is something that Mary Butts is aware of and and plays on the, the word adventure crops up an awful lot and we know explicitly that these these characters are mostly all in their 30s I think Felix the younger brother Scylla is slightly younger, but you know these these aren't young people. Uh, some of them have fought in the First World War, but equally there seems to be this this kind of innocence in the characters. There's there's something about to interrupt this innocence, and perhaps this is is an influence of Blake on Mary Butts. But there's yeah, I think it is very much as you said earlier this this sense of foreboding the things that are about to come to a head and even on page nine so at the very beginning says everywhere there was a sense of broken continuity of disease the end of an age the beginning of another it seems like there's multiple things being rolled into one here and I'm I don't know how much is this reading as a contemporary reader reading back on it but the sense of certainly a very you know at this point in the 20s for Britain anyway is very changing world Britain's place in the world is shifting quite dramatically for these kind of aristocratic characters for a country that never has any kind of republican revolution there's a there's starting to be a big shift in their status which they they seem to be sort of ignoring this idea of them living in a perpetual childhood it also seems to be reflected in their living in this almost fantasy world you know they're they're separated from i don't know the urban decay of the city and there are very few explicit references to to the war i even seem to remember one of the characters saying quite flippantly blame it on the war or 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 some such phrase do you recall that rob well yeah there's a section in 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 fact just after the bit i just read where Butts herself, in, in describing it, says uh, there was something wrong with all of them, or with their world. A moment missed, a moment to come, or not coming, or either or both. Shove it off on the war, but that did not help. I mean, it's it's quite funny reading that, because it really proceeds and, and stops this overly contextual reading of the book, which I think is very helpful, because it would be very easy. I mean, my first reaction to it was to, to yeah, think about this generation trapped as it was you know not knowing that the second world war was to come but having a certain innocence or illusion of what the world was like shattered and and brought quite violently into the into the modern world and yeah exactly as you say these childlike adults living out this fantasy pretending it's not really happening yeah it's even referred to as uh, a midsummer night's dream true greenwood mm. yeah yes yeah, yeah 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 so yeah part of me wanted to to 
go on with that very contextual reading. But but seems to have already uh, to have thought of that, and you know it's it's inevitable that this is this is partly going on here. I think it's interesting that Cecil Maitland, the the person she leaves Rodka for, apparently is, is very badly affected by his wartime experience. So I think it it would be unfair to say that this isn't in the book at all, whatever. But says, and I suppose yeah, when she says that did not help, she's she's perhaps talking about the characters as much as she is us. So it doesn't necessarily help us completely understand what's going on here, but it also it doesn't offer any solace to the characters to to be able to diagnose their own ills. It's only very consciously there in in reference to Clarence, the ca- the character who is a veteran of the war, and it's said that his body is branded with shrapnel and bullet and bayonet thrust. And then later, his sort of violent episode, um, which is one of the culmination points of the of the book, has been attributed to shell shock or post traumatic stress. You know, after having dealt with the war, and and um, some people have aligned him with the character of Septimus in in Mrs. Dalloway, you know, Wolf's novel. But it's one of the few moments where the war is um, really, really present explicitly. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't think it's unfair to make those comparisons at all. No, no. I think perhaps what, what Putz is, is saying is that all of this is absolutely true, but it's it's some kind of recurrence or there's um historical or kind of like mythical precedence to all of this, which suggests that all of this is happening and it and it has these specific roots, but there is also something else deeper or older or even beyond time which is which is beneath it. And I think, yeah, very interestingly, ambiguously, she never really settles on one side or the other, which I think is what makes this still such an enjoyable thing to read. Yeah, it's very different to something like The the Wasteland uh, in that respect, isn't it? Which also uses this grail myth as one of its underpinnings or purports to. And Eliot draws from that that myth these images of sterility and and decay uh, in a kind of broken world after the First World War. Butts is doing something quite different, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think um, the character of Carsten is really interesting, coming in as this American, as someone completely outside of this, but culturally completely outside of it. And it's made very clear in the beginning when he arrives, he has this sort of picture postcard idea of England, which the area he arrives in seems to completely conform to. He calls it Hardy's England, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and then obviously as this trick is played on him and um, there's a kind of social breakdown within the group which he's very much at the forefront of it's uh, you know the slightly loses this idealized view but it's yeah I find it interesting that he's placed because he's almost slightly like an empty vessel in this case he doesn't bring any American cultural stereotypes with him really he brings some records but the group already seemed to you know he only brought the latest records the group already seemed to be listening to jazz and, and so on so he comes with this strange empty vessel and he even says to Scylla at one point I have no memories and I think this is you know part of some kind of courtship what he describes as an erotic conversation where he hopes to win her over but this idea of kind of like the modern world completely cleaved from history or folklore or something because of what happens to Carson after this initial split that he then upon meeting 
Pegasus' father and, and realising that the, the group is perhaps in trouble, he switches back to their side, having, having been very angry about their lack of hospitality and the fact that he has to leave the cottage because he's so angry with them. He then sort of switches back to their side and it seems like in that movement that perhaps Butts is, is suggesting actually there is something really worthwhile saving there that this you know this fantasy is um, not very realistic and and uh, childlike in its innocence but it isn't something which should be thrown away altogether mm. and that seems to really come out in the character of Picus's father maybe i can say very briefly that having found the the grail cup the group then are kind of intruded upon by Picus's father who tells them that in fact the grail cup was some kind of chalice that was part of his collection as a the antiquarian gentleman and it's been stolen by Picus and the whole thing is a, is a is a ruse and it's that sort of brings about a certain closure in a way you are, you understand what's gone on but in another way it's it's not at all satisfying because so much more has gone on with the with the group dynamics that actually the the grail cup is is a vehicle for but isn't essential that no one perhaps really believes that they're dealing with the genuine grail cup or something like that mr tracy because his father is also very evasive about its origins he tells a false story about about what it is that it's um the poison cup of a of an indian aristocrat even that its entry in this book of ancient altar vessels might be a falsification as well it's never actually determined what this what this object is this like the reference i think a few times to to freud and freud's game of word association that actually perhaps the cup is far more important for its associations and what it brings about that's somehow essential or latent in the group than what it is historically or, or any kind of like scientific accuracy in its um, categorization he was still on the crest of the energy he had spent in denouncing them in a general sensation of burned boats. There had not yet risen doubt of himself, scrutiny, not of his motives, he knew better than to do that, but of the figure he had cut. Yet his angry elation was like a fir cone fire, needing baskets of brittle wood shells. He had a fine story for his friends, something to think about. Scylla written off as a bad job, as a romance, it seemed equally impossible to say goodbye, to leave without saying it. Then the old nurse knocked, told him that his taxi was there, and that Mr. Felix, Miss Scylla, and Mr. Ross wished him a pleasant journey. He tipped her enormously, slipped across the veranda, fearing heads that were not watching. With jars and jerks, the taxi crept up the long hill, divine escape. On the downcrest, the earth was a map of naked beauty he saw in the peace and understood. I've been living inside a work of art. Living what was meant to be looked at, not lived in, not to be chewed, swallowed, handled, kissed. He lay back, rocking over the grass track, almost satisfied with this. A piece of life definitely over for him, with the Stone Age and the Middle Ages, and... A patch of purple gauze ahead, smoke of no earthly fire. Now a patch of those tall, bee-shaken spikes they call foxgloves. As they passed it, he saw thin legs stuck out of it along the earth, a body backed against the flower wall. It was Picus out there, 
up there, looking out at nothing, out to sea, sitting on top of the world. Can I ask you about Karsten mm. a little bit more? Because I think we've talked about this a little bit, but I was really conscious of, um, at least towards the beginning of the of the novel, a certain disdain for his simply being American. Mm. You know, that fairly obliquely, usually through allusions or quotations in the text, he's associated with, with the lowbrow, with folk song and popular culture and bad poetry and Butts even writes that they had ordered him from the States like a new record. Yeah, which is quite um, quite amusing. But he's also described as being sort of out of his depth when the group are discussing the myths of the, the Celts and Saxons and, and Romans, which he only conceives of as things completely over so far as he knew. He muses that the, this group talked as if there's no, there was no time, no progress, no morality. So I don't know if you see a sort of disdain for this I don't know, American forward-thinking detachment from English heritage and an inability to understand it as a result of that. Do you find that sort of attitude there? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And in the early section of the book where he sort of fallen very quickly in love with Scylla and says he it's this one sort of drunken evening they spend together and he thinks to himself and he says that he derided the men because an American would discover a treasure worth a hundred St. Grails and he thinks that none of them have fallen for Scylla and in fact discovers the very next day that Scylla and Picus in a relationship. There's a naivety certainly there and for sure in in terms of the the way that when the resonance of the of the cup that's been found and the entire grail myth is explained to him, it goes completely over his head, as it sort of does to us as a reader to a certain extent, because it's it's not even just the historical or the symbolic folkloric relevance. It's the relevance very specifically to this group and their dynamic. And I think that's one of the most incredible parts of the books is that Butts seems to give this small group of characters an incredible history. You really believe that they've grown up together and spent all this time together, but purely through illusion and, and very small descriptions of their interaction you know their physical interaction and there's never any description of of their history no really at all but the the ease with which they move around each other and and the kind of like small petty squabbles that they fall into yeah and the, the sort of density of their idiolect you know they yeah, have this absolutely. shared shared network of references clearly so yeah i would um I would absolutely agree about this anti-American thing to a certain extent, but then I also feel like, I guess as I sort of said earlier, that there's a, a slight overconfidence in the English characters too, that they they perhaps believe themselves of necessity because they don't want to, to move out of this fantasy world, that they too are, are very comfortable and, and kind of in their element in the best sense of the word, and and really perhaps they're not. And that in the second section, as, as Carsten sort of becomes this saviour or, or you know he comes back to to pass on this news which will perhaps save the group in one sense and then also break them apart it feels like he whilst he doesn't understand the historical the the myths the, the whatever he actually has cottoned on to what's going on beneath the surface i know, very much like the character of percival in the grail myth we meet him as this very naive figure and watch his kind of growing under understanding. So while, while I don't think it's, it's that helpful to read the book too schematically, I think throughout, Butts is kind of alerting us to the identification of Carsten with 
Percival in the early Grail texts, in both Wolfram von Eschenbach's Percival and, um, I'm going to say this incorrectly, Rob, Chrétien de Troyes' story of the Grail, Percival is a figure who's been kind of sheltered from the dangers of the chivalric culture of his time. He's a kind of naive and foolish character. Um, he is just like Karsten, kind of uninitiated and so much so that when Percival meets a party of knights he believes them to be angels you know I think we can see something of something of that in his first impressions of the group as kind of I don't know ethereal creatures or not quite adults somehow this kind of childish ideal likewise in the in the grail myth he's he's dissuaded from asking questions as he watches the grail procession at the fisher king's hall and and so fails to understand what he's seen as we've said before we sort of as readers follow the same arc as as cast and everything we read seems to be geared towards disorientating us and the dialogue between the friends really has a sort of utilitarian utilitarian purpose rather to have the sort of smugness of private jokes between them and so we are kind of by virtue of being kept in the dark we associate Carsten's emotions with uh, with our own and as you mentioned he he falls quite quickly for for Scylla this sort of enigmatic figure but seems to regard himself as as very chivalrous you know he seems to feel that he needs to protect her you know he doesn't like the idea of this one woman um, alone in the company of so many men when we're privy to his thoughts, he's thinking about how they're not disturbed about Scylla and Butts writes that she might be walking out alone in the livid night. He wanted to go and meet her to see her safely home. Why were they so careless of their women? She had told him that love had left them, had courtesy. He was an American gentleman in an uneasy place. Yes, he would go at once and fetch his young hostess, a proper thing to do. He felt at ease for the first time. So I think that in Carsten's thoughts there, we can see a sort of disjunction between Butts's role for him as this naive and inexperienced Tyro and his own vision of himself as already transformed into this boldly heroic knight-errant questing on behalf of some fair damsel, you know. He even conceives of Scylla in poetic terms as La Belle Dame sans merci, uh, alluding to that Keats poem. He says, women lovely and mad, or only lovely and only mad, should not, be a left, should not be left alone in woods. Literature did not help him. He could only think of La Belle Dame sans merci, and she wasn't that kind. She should think of him as a real man, not one of her flighty shadows. But then, of course, I think Butts is kind of playing with us there. She's making fun of the fact that the Carsten just like the speaker in in Keats's poem hasn't hasn't recognized the manner of creature that he's encountered he's too enchanted by her beauty you know the beauty of this sort of this elven maid even in his kind of flash of awareness we're being alerted to his naivety again those parallels are really strongly pointed to between Carsten and Percival Scylla was staring out to sea and her head lifted in profile made her look at the sky where it seemed as if some mathematical monster had risen out of the west. For where the sun was turning down channel, a bull glared, surrounded by ranks of rose bars, and out from these clouds radiated that reached over to the eastern heavens, across whose spokes strayed loose flakes dipped in every variety of flame. The triangles of empty sky stained all the greens between primrose and jade. Herring sky, she said. 
What does that mean? She laughed with a confident joy he understood the first time. Southwest wind, listen. He heard his heart beating, a hair in his ear, and a transfinite length away, the stirring that had made uneasy the sea. A big storm, she said, turning on him, eyes full of an animal's pleasure. The parallels between Scylla as the only female character and Mary Butts herself, certainly it seems like Carsten's idea of of who she is is very much not who she is. Mary Butts, at least later in life, very clearly says that she's not a feminist. But yet the details, you know, biographical details of her life suggest that she, even if she doesn't associate with that label, she lives in such a way that wouldn't have been considered proper for a woman. And so, to a certain extent, she she kind of is. <laughs> and it's interesting because Scylla is not this damsel in distress that Carsten imagines as she must be. She's she's also not the cartoon, you know, she's not she's not an Amazon. She's she has strengths and weaknesses. And I was interested to know, yeah, what what your thoughts were on that I, I thought it was interesting in terms of Scylla how she she doesn't really have a concrete identity in the book at all uh, she seems to be a sort of composite of the various viewpoints of other characters in the in the book they all have mythic underpinnings I mean there, there are so many mythical associations surrounding that character firstly in her in her name Scylla reminding us of Scylla and Charybdis the, the sea monsters in Greek mythology that Odysseus has to sort of navigate in between in Homer's epic. Then we have her we have her identified with Iduna, the goddess from Norse mythology, as a sort of gatekeeper of eternal youth, you know, and it's also speculated that Iduna represents fertility in Norse religion. And I I read also, Rob, um an article by Andrew Radford, um, which I found otherwise completely off the mark. That's the one I mentioned to you that unfathomably frames this novel as a fascist text, which which I, I don't I don't really agree with personally. But he identifies Scylla with Persephone, along with several other of Butts's protagonists in various novels and, and so that connection with the land and with vegetation and fertility as well as that sort of chthonic resonance of the of the underworld does seem to be in there you know there's a moment when butts writes of her lying alone out on the on the roof she says to detach herself she played an old game that she was lying out on the woods roof translating the stick and leaf that upheld her into herself into sea into sky sky back again into wood flesh and sea so i think you can see that blurring of the body and the land and those borders becoming indistinguishable but all of these things preclude a reading of of Scylla as just a just a young woman you know a quite independent if whimsical young woman who seems to enjoy the admiration that that surrounds her and has no desire seemingly to be I don't know almost captured in marriage some of her friends expect her to sort of conform and she doesn't want to but yeah those those mythical uh, resonances they don't end there you know we also have her figured as saint sebastian later on when she's tied to Mm. tied tied to the post and shot with arrows by by clarence there are just so many things that make up her identity and and just like the grail cup whose final 
categorization we never we never quite learn i think Scylla remains elusive right to the end of the book perhaps for me anyway that's why she perhaps is the most well fleshed out character as a real person perhaps no one can ever be simply categorized in in one way or another there'll be you know multiple facets and, and things and contradictions she has the most true to life emotional responses within the book she plays along with this with this game of the cup and she seems the one perhaps most aware of the dual nature of it as a game which very much has the capacity to hurt and destroy them but equally to how that looks to an outsider to someone like Carsten I think it's said of of her brother that he didn't know that he had no right for Carsten to not understand that triple negative but um, <laughs> basically that yeah he just couldn't understand that Carsten wouldn't understand whereas Scylla does seem to to understand that but yet in her relationships with Picus it's it's really quite touching that you know she seems very much in love with this man and at the point where she realizes that he's played this trick on Carsten and she could be next and it kind of undermines this perhaps naive faith that she has in him yeah there's a there's a there's an emotional tenderness there which i which i found really touching and it says yeah she butts writes says the the whole grail story the story par excellence that has never come off or found its form or as poet there was something in their lives spoiled and inconclusive like the grail story it would be her t- her turn next for Picus to insult and so it sort of folds all these macro and micro levels together where the Grail story could be taken as some overarching idea of, of life itself as this quest or I don't know, something. But then equally that it's found in, in the smallest of these kind of interpersonal romantic relations that she's obviously looking for something and thinks she might have found it in, in Picus, who she elevates to the status of, of Zeus. And when this is suddenly revealed to be, or he's he's revealed to be very much not a god. That yeah, she the the emotional turmoil and angst is it feels very real. So yeah, I would I would absolutely agree that it's it's never settled on exactly who she is or what kind of a character she is. But that perhaps makes her even more real or, or the most real of all of them. I see her as sort of. Um... A sort of transgressive character. I was reading snippets of Jesse Weston's From Ritual to Romance, one of the texts that I think was really influential for Butts in, in conceiving of this book. There's a mention not only of the, I don't know, the evil or, or horror that the Grail Cup portends, but the idea that a woman mustn't speak of it. Yeah, I'll just read this little passage. Jesse Weston writes, Students of Grail literature cannot fail to have been impressed by a certain atmosphere of awe and mystery which surrounds that enigmatic vessel. There is a secret connected with it, the revelation of which will will entail dire misfortune on the betrayer. If spoken of at all, it must be with scrupulous accuracy. It is no secret a thing that no woman be she wife or maid, may venture to speak of it. A priest or a man of holy life might indeed tell the marvel of the grail, but none can hearken to the recital without shuddering, trembling and changing colour for very fear. I don't know, I get this this sense of um, transgression in in Scylla's playing along with the various usages and determinations of the grail cup that might be mirrored in the way that she interacts with, you know, interacts slightly 
coquettishly with the various male characters in the book you know and that extends not only to Carson and Pickus but also Clarence whom she claims to be marrying at one point to her friend Lydia is that right yeah 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 yeah. simply to outrage them and as you were saying that earlier I was thinking that actually you know it's very apparent now and and perhaps at the time far far more so uh, very difficult to to imagine quite how it would have been received but going back to this this funny parallel with um, something like Famous Five or, or something you know she's a very long way away I think from the kind of female character that you might find Have you read those books Rob? I did when I was a kid and actually there is actually a, a kind of not very standard female character is that right or is that in one I, of the other ones? I don't know them I don't know them uh, what a sort of tomboyish sort of character. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. But I guess what's interesting here is that perhaps a certain bit of tomboyism would have been accepted up to a certain age when you then would have had to become... And there's plenty of examples of that happening in, in literature and in film where some young tomboy blossoms into a beautiful woman, but, you know, she's fulfilling her societally expected fate. And it feels, yeah, definitely like Scylla isn't going down that route very much so. These indeterminacies, not just in, you know, in the characters of Carsten, who sees himself as something very different from how he appears to other characters, the various viewpoints, various visions of what Scylla is, and what the Grail Cup is, they seem to be really essential to Butts' project as as a writer in this, this novel, I think. I mentioned to you this moment in her diary when she expresses the wish to say the unsayable, to convey an unknown in the terms of the known. I don't know, it seems to me that that indeterminacy is almost the essence of this book, which is part of why it's so difficult to describe, I think. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. And in in terms of the, the form as well, the way that these characters are in such close proximity, they're so much a part of each other's lives until this, this event which suddenly sends them hurtling off on their, their own trajectories, only to then come back. So yeah, there's a very strange part of that. I don't know if you found this when you were reading it as well, but the point when all of a sudden, having spent, you know, 100 and whatever pages watching these characters just within this very small setting of, of the cottage and suddenly Felix is in Paris and Scylla and Carson are in London and it's very disconcerting I found. Yeah even that has a textual precedent in the Grail mythology. I, I read it actually in this um, one of the best articles I read it was Jennifer Kroll's Mary Butts's Unrest Cure for the Wasteland and she writes of how the appearance of the grail in Mallory's Mort D'Arthur disperses the knights of the round table and that they, they kind of spread off on their own separate quests. So that a really interesting point that the, the, the structure is sort of mirrored in this text as well. At the point at the end of the book where they're brought back together, obviously there is this kind of initial horrific near death of Scylla uh, at the hands of Clarence. But then at, at the very end, we, we seem to just be back at the beginning on the shores of the sea waiting for this foreign visitor to arrive this time the russian boris uh, who is perhaps the the boyfriend of felix but yeah exactly this that the the kind of necessity of this this explosion and this parting of ways and then returning again that the the search is actually far far more important than the thing being searched for 
and that it's kind of endlessly repeating itself. And in this case, interesting that having gone to Paris and gone to London, they then return to this kind of strange fantasy world where perhaps everything is slightly heightened. It is strikingly similar, the final description we get of the, the land, isn't it? I'm just looking at this passage now. Uh, when the foreign visitor Boris arrives, it says, they climbed a little cliff path. At the top, he began to look around him. He took a look at England. He saw a line of treeless hills, a puzzle of fields, under his feet a pattern of sweet herbs. An arrow of wood they entered, into a tunnel of light where birds broke cover, green even under the feet. So we're again back in this sort of, um, this merry England in the same way that Carsten originally conceives of it. It doesn't feel cyclical exactly because we've seen this rupture, you know, structurally in the text and, and within the the relationships between the characters it's quite hard to feel that, that that landscape is is unsoiled quite hard to feel as a reader as you might you know you might have at the beginning when you're aligned with Carsten that you you are entering this green and pure landscape it's very hard to read that with the with the sense that everything has gone unchanged but I was also interested reading that end section because yeah perhaps cyclical isn't isn't necessarily the best description some kind of oscillation or something because it, it really made me think okay at this point where you pick up the book and you and you enter with Carsten actually what what are the precedents for these characters that are already at the cottage what previous violent fallouts have happened and and what precedes them we we don't know and it's not even alluded to but it did make me think that there could be that that kind of all of this could have happened in some or like similar similar events could have happened before not in the same way and not without leaving their mark but I wondered if that was something that Butts was perhaps leaving up to our imagination. We know that Carsten's association with this group originally found place in a very different setting right in um, Paris. Ah yes. So in a sort of urban setting and he doesn't really have um, true vision into what their, their relationships are. So I'll ask you the, the final question slightly differently this time, Rob. Mm-hmm. How would you recommend this book if you were to do so? <laughs> How would I recommend it? What would you, or rather, what would you recommend it for? I mean, I think it's a, a fantastic book to read for the language. It's really quite beautiful. And I think it's the sort of book that can be read again and again to kind of start to pull more and more out of it. I don't think there is a, a definitive reading in any way as a object of scholarly inquiry it would offer a lot but but nothing that you could say okay i've solved it i have the key to the book now no that's that's exactly it i think it feels like you know even after having finished it the book still feels unread to me in the way that that certain very complex or rich poems feel unread i do get the sense that this would really repay rereading that you'd start to notice more and more connections um tracing some of these illusions in more detail would really illuminate things as well as well as the obvious beauty of the writing in this kind of dreamlike prose which is wonderful to read i'd also like that it sort of broadens the the palette of what of what modernism is in a sense I don't know of a kind of comparable text that comes out of that milieu. You know, the introduction of rural fantasy and mysticism is really unlike any other 
in this text I've, I've encountered. And in a funny way, I'd say, and I don't say this, I think of the books we've read, perhaps only at Twilight They Return, had a similar effect, but I, I almost feel like I'm going to miss some of the characters. Sounds slightly silly to, to say, but I feel that they, they have a, a certain weight to them. There's a quote from Carsten in the book, which I think maybe sums up the book quite well. When he, when he leaves the, the group for the first time in a, in a rage and, and looks back over the landscape, in fact, he has this what he thinks is an epiphany and he says um, I've been living inside a work of art living what was meant to be looked at not lived in not to be chewed swallowed handled kissed and I really I mean I think as a description of an artwork actually perhaps or what I'd like to think perhaps what Mary Butts is really saying is that Carson is completely wrong here that this is such a phenomenally beautiful description of an artwork that's something in fact the opposite of what Carson thinks it's not meant to be just looked at, but it is meant to be lived in, chewed, swallowed, handled, kissed. I think as a, as a series of adjectives, that's a, a really phenomenal description of, of how to engage with an artwork. And I really felt that reading, reading the book. It needed quite a lot of chewing and could occasionally be hard to swallow, but that was certainly what was going on. Yeah, and my uh, dog-eared and creased spine and, you know, highlights and notations are testament to that, I think. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Shared's podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.